Hey girls, boys, and folks beyond the binary like me! Welcome back to On The Mic, Outspoken LGBTQ Storytelling. I'm Devlin Camp. Once a month, people from all over Chicago gather at Sidetrack, one of the city's longest-running gay bars, to hear stories told live by LGBTQ people. Now we're going back into the archives, now seven years of archives, to bring the stories to you. And I've got some fun ones for you today. Sometimes you just gotta take a break. From dating, from going out every night, socializing, you just gotta get off the grid. And other times you've had enough time off the grid and you're ready to get back out there, girl. Are you feeling the urge to party again? Outspoken is here to help. Today, we've got stories from three queer folks who are hitting the bars, ready for a memorable night out, which they will then talk about on another fun night out at another gay bar called Sidetrack. Let's hear their stories. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience. Each storyteller at Outspoken speaks from their unique perspective and their views do not represent those of other speakers, the hosts, Outspoken, or Sidetrack. And if you're enjoying the show, while you're listening, hop on to Apple Podcasts to give us a rating or a little review to boost the show to new listeners. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to introduce Ada Chang who's our first storyteller, and we're thrilled to have her with us tonight. Ada is a professor turned storyteller and performance artist. She b- debuted her first solo show, Not Quite Asian Americans by Law, Asian Women by Desire, in January 2017. She debuted her second solo show, Breaking Rules, Broken Hearts, Loving Across Borders, with play of Solo in January of 2018. She's performed it at the Exit Theater in San Francisco in June and the United Solo Theater Festival in New York in October. Ada's a producer and the host of a storytelling podcast show, Am I Man Enough?, a storycasting podcast show where people tell stories, uh, critically examine the culture of toxic masculinity and the construction of masculinity and manhood. Her motto, make your life the best story you can tell. In addition, she's a producer of Talk Stories, Asian-American storytelling. And um, without further ado, Ada, come join us. Do you believe in life after love? It was 10 p.m. on January 9th, 1999. It was a freezing Saturday night. I just ended a three-year long-distance relationship between the United States and the Philippines that completely tore me apart. I got tired of spending weekends weeping by myself at home and feeling that I was doomed to feeling alone or being alone forever. So I went out dancing with Chris, Yvonne, Jimmy, and Scott, all gay men from Taiwan at Oyokin Harry's one of the popular gay bars in Austin, Texas. It was just the beginning of the night. And we were dancing in a circle to Cher's 1998 hit song, Believe, when she sang, do you believe in life after love? I can feel something inside me say, I really don't think you're strong enough. Chris, the most fashionable one among us, always wearing a J. Crew t-shirt and a pair of pants from Banana Republic, suddenly (laughs) fashionable. (laughs) 
suddenly looked behind me and looked back at me and said, look behind you. She is cute, just your type. I turned around and saw Jamie. Yep, she had a pair of black pants and a, a, a black suit. She was 5'8", tall, slim, short haircut, boyish looking, just the way I liked it. In case you're wondering about my sexual orientation and relational pattern, let me explain this way. It is only dictated by one market ideology. First come, first serve. <laughs> my door is always open to needy people or people in need. I returned to face my friends. I didn't have the guts to just walk up to her and dance with her. That would have been too bold for my taste. Even though I was in my mid-30s, I still didn't know how to flirt effectively. I always end up having sex when I just flirt to have relationships. So I say no, no to flirting unless I intend to have sex. But then, Cher was screaming with her sultry voice with the lyrics saying, because I know that I'm strong. I don't need you anymore. I don't need you anymore. I thought she was telling me to let go of the broken past and to move forward with something new. So I spent the next 20 minutes dancing around and readjusting my position until I appeared to be accidentally standing right in front of Jamie. <laughs> we smiled at each other. I was proud of myself. That was smooth for my pattern. <laughs> Jamie asked me, would you like to be my dance partner for tonight? Revealing all her teeth with a big smile. Sure, of course. I reply with a coy grin. It wouldn't be polite to show all my teeth the first time. <laughs> so for the next three hours, we danced and laughed and talked. In a crowd of gay men, we were hot. She was tall and cute. I was beautiful and wonderfully small. Back in 1999, so use your imagination. <laughs> Around 2 a.m., my friends said they, they were ready to go home. Jamie asked me, would you like to come home with me? My friends started cheering me on when they heard that. They felt it was time for me to start having sex with human beings after three years as opposed to using insertable vi vibrating objects. <laughs> I, on the other hand, was horrified. I thought to myself, are you not supposed to look out after me? Are you not worried that I will be going home with a stranger? She could be a killer. I turned to her and said, sure, let's go. <laughs> And we jumped into her red sports car and got back to her place. She lived in a very small apartment very close to UTA Austin campus. Her apartment was decorated with flowers, candles, and incenses. That place was so clean that I realized that this invitation was premeditated. 
we sat down on the floor. She said she would like to smoke some marijuana. I said, well, I would like to try some too. That would be my first time, marijuana-wise. <laughs> After passing the smoke back and forth a few times, she said she would like to read tarot cards for me. Sure, why not? I was just waiting for her to initiate sex. <laughs> Maybe reading tarot cards was part of the foreplay for her. I'll wait. <laughs> Two hours have passed. <laughs> It's 4 a.m. in the morning. And I'm getting impatient and frustrated. And I'm having this intense internal dialogue. First, marijuana is overrated. <laughs> What is supposed to happen to me after I smoke it? Because I'm not feeling the effect that people are talking about. Second, enough of the turtle cards crap already. I don't care about the death or the devil or him. And I'm screaming in my head, tie me up. Tie me upside down. <laughs> Have sex with me. Turn the wheel of fortune, take me to the moon. <laughs> Third, should I just grab her and kiss her so we can get this over with? Wait a minute, is that how I think about sex? Get it over with? I finally gave up at 4.30 a.m. I told her I need to get going. She said she would give me a ride. As we were walking toward the door, I, I could not believe that I wasted the whole night for nothing. I turned to her and stared deeply into her eyes and said, are we going to have sex or not? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> At least someone agreed. <laughs> But wow. That was just sexy. I mean, I could have kissed her gently or tickled her playfully. No, I just asked a stranger for sex like a four-year-old boy having tantrums because he didn't get his candies. Jamie laughs, takes my hand, and leads me to her bedroom. The apartment is small. The bed is right next to the couch. <laughs> Six hours of foreplay. I'm more than ready for this moment. Sex is, let me tell you, I stay for the next three years. <laughs> <laughs> I don't just believe in life after love. I believe in love after love after love. Thank you. So our next storyteller is Richard Rodriguez, and he's associate professor of English and Latina Latino studies at the University of Illinois at Ur uh, Urbana-Champaign, where he's also affiliated with the Department of Gender and Women's Studies and the Unit for Criticism and Interpretive Theory. 
Ooh, these academics, love it. Uh, during the 2012-2013 academic year, he was acting chair of Latina Latino Studies and is currently serving as associate chair. He is currently writing a book on Latino male sexuality and the politics of social space. Come on up, Ricky. Hello. Um, I, if I was to title this story, it would probably be something like um, my initial foray into dating in Chicago, um, or how I made a boyfriend by sitting on a couch watching a slasher film, um, and uh, feared for my life and wanted to run out of an apartment. Uh, so let me just give you the context as to why the story would be titled that. So about 10 years, yeah, it's been about 10 years ago, I moved from Los Angeles to Illinois, uh, but my initial move wasn't to Chicago, it was to Urbana-Champaign. I lived there for four years and it was difficult to cultivate a social life because if you've been in Champaign-Urbana, you know it's tough if you're queer and if you're not married um, and your only social outlet is the sole gay bar called C Street, which caters to the students. So the two times I went there, I lasted about 10 minutes and both times uh, I, walk, I walked in and ran into a student and said, and they, each one of them said, Professor Rodriguez, let me buy you a drink. And I did an about face and walked out and never came back. Um, you know, and of course I have friends who ask me, well, why didn't you take them up on your offer? And I, my response is always, I want a job. Um, uh, but anyway, so uh, I would have initially, I would, I would come up to Chicago on the weekends and stay with a friend who, uh, started commuting, um, and I didn't really have a social life even when I came to Chicago on the weekends. I would usually find myself in a cafe writing my book for tenure, uh, but I knew that after I got tenure that I would make the move like my colleague to Chicago and commute. Uh, four years later, um, I got tenure and I moved to Chicago, and I didn't live too far from this neighborhood. Um, and so when I made the move uh, to the neighborhood, a really good friend of mine named Melly, uh, a fierce Puerto Rican woman from Chicago, uh, encouraged me to explore Boys Town, but she warned me about the men of Chicago, who she knew very well, having grown up here, uh, both heterosexual and non-heterosexual, and she told me, have fun, but be careful. Uh, so I made my way to Boys Town after two months, um, and it took me two months because she instilled a sense of fear in me because she mentioned <laughs> a particular serial killer who I shall not name. Um, and I did all this Googling and found out that in fact he had frequented Boys Town bars. So I didn't want to go out even though he had been long dead. Uh, but, uh, uh, but it still scared the hell out of me. Um, so eventually I did make my way to the bars here and I found one that I liked. Uh, but usually what would happen is I'd find myself in a corner with my vodka soda um, and my cell phone surfing the internet and I'd walk, I'd go home, uh, I'd take a cab and that would be the end of my night. But one night I m made eye contact with this really cute guy and uh, I didn't say anything but fortunately he approached me and it was a great encounter. We had a fantastic conversation which lasted all of 30 minutes. Um, but I had to excuse myself because I had to wake up early the next, the next morning to take the train to Champaign. He said, that's fine, we have plenty of time to get to know each other. Uh, so I told him I was about to leave and he said, well, let me give you a ride home. I came to meet you. 
and so I let him give me a ride home, and we parked outside of my apartment building and chatted for about two hours. Uh, I got three hours of sleep, but that was fine because when I woke up the next morning, I was elated. Um, so I get to Champagne. He starts texting me and calling me, uh, and I tell Melly about this guy, and she's like, uh, sounds a little creepy to me. Um, <laughs> If he's already texting you, there's something wrong with him. Uh, but anyway, I didn't pay any attention to her. Um, I was excited, and I was looking forward to our date planned for Friday. So Friday couldn't get, get here fast enough, um, and so when it finally did arrive, and I was back in Chicago, uh, he didn't call. Uh, and so I was wondering what was going on, um, and I didn't want to call him, but eventually, he did text me, it was around seven o'clock, and we had initially made plans for dinner, and I thought, oh, it's kind of late to go out to dinner now, but you know, whatever, I haven't eaten, so we'll go out to dinner. So he shows up at my place around nine o'clock and asks me what I want to do, and I told him, well, I, I thought we were going to dinner, and he says, well, I already ate, so why don't we get you something to eat, and, um, and we'll think of something else to do, maybe going grocery shopping. Um, so anyway, be, before, we, be, before we do any of this, um, he tells me that he forgot, uh, that he left his stereo on, so we have to drive back to Pilsen so he can turn off the stereo um, because his neighbors will be upset at him. Um, so we make our way down Damon um, and we eventually get to Pilsen. Um, and without saying a word, he pulls up to the curb and we find ourselves at Pizza Nova. Um, he orders for me two slices of pizza, a large Coke and an order of fries. Uh, I didn't want this. I was trying to watch what I was eating at the time, um, but I didn't want to say anything. So I ate everything he ordered for me. Um, and he was staring at me the whole time, no conversation whatsoever. And I tried to, uh, I, I tried to initiate some kind of conversation, but everything I was saying was just falling flat. Um, anyhow, so I get in his car. Um, he lives only a few blocks away, and sure enough, the stereo is blasting from his apartment. He turns it off, and he tells me that before we do anything, he has to take a bath. Okay. <laughs> Before he takes a bath, he tells me that he wants me to watch a movie to keep myself occupied. So he opens up a cabinet to reveal his DVD collection consisting of nothing but slasher films. So I thought, oh shit. <laughs> I was afraid of serial killers all this time, and I probably ended up going out with one. Anyway, so I tell him that I don't want to choose which film I want to watch, so I'll let him choose for me. So I'm watching this film while watching him take a bath. The bathroom has no door. The bathtub has no curtain. So he really is taking a bath. And he's making sure that I'm watching him while he's watching me. 
while I'm watching a slasher film. <laughs> 10 minutes pass, and I keep thinking during those 10 minutes, do I politely excuse myself? Do I run out of his apartment? But I keep thinking that there's a moment of identification with one of those stupid teenagers who runs into the house knowing very well that Jason is in there. And I'm still in his place knowing that I could end up like that teenager. Anyhow, uh, he walks out of the, the bathroom uh, with a towel wrapped around his waist. And he takes a seat, and he takes my hand, and he says he wants to make love. I don't know what came over me, but I told him, I think that's maybe moving a little too fast. <laughs> so he agrees, and he says, well, why don't we be boyfriends? And the only thing I could bring myself to say was, yes. <laughs> so I'm now boyfriends with a potential serial killer. So we're sitting there watching this film, and he's pretty certain that I'm not enjoying it. So after about... 10 minutes or so, he gets up, gets dressed, and he says he's going to take me home. And I tell him it's not necessary, I can walk to the train, and he tells me I'm not letting my boyfriend take the train home. <laughs> so we get in his car, and the drive lasts longer than the drive from Champaign to Chicago. <laughs> or at least it feels like that. So we eventually make our way back to my apartment. He kisses me goodnight and he says that he'll call me in the morning. I didn't sleep that night. <laughs> and the next morning, I anticipated his call, and he never called, and I was relieved. <laughs> Fast forward two months, after I decide that it's okay to go out again, <laughs> I see my one-night-stand boyfriend at the same club, and we acknowledge each other, and don't say anything else. But about a half hour later, he comes up to me, and he says, I'm sorry I never called you back, but it's hard for me to be boyfriends with someone who doesn't share my taste in movies. <laughs> Thank you. You know it outspoken. We always like to take a moment to remind you that gay and queer and trans and intersex folks are not a new thing in this world. We've all been here since the beginning of humanity. In fact, not that long ago, in 1973, one of our most legendary clubs opened in River North in Chicago, Dugan's Bistro. It's been described as the Studio 54 of the Midwest, even though the Bistro opened four years before 54. After a recent protest, gays in Chicago had just won the right to have same-sex dancing in their bars, and they were ready to party. The club opened in an enormous building that used to have a bistro. 
hence the name Dugan's Bistro. And it was right across the street from a police station. It's four years after Stonewall, try and stop us from dancing. Celebrities came from all over the country to dance at Dugan's Bistro. Andy Warhol, John Waters, Diana Ross, Bette Midler. And they came to party with the Bistro's queen, the Bearded Lady. This drag queen was known for outrageous performances in which she would strip away several layers of clothing, turning around to show her hairy backside. The Bearded Lady would say, I'm giving back to my audience. She wore homemade headdresses made of kitchen utensils, bird cages, and plastic flamingos. Other queens would be instructed by management to get up on the bar and kick glasses and give away free drinks just to create a spectacle and build buzz for the bistro. The club was always outrageously decorated, like in the style of a circus or a massive upside-down Christmas tree hanging from the ceiling, or giant palm branches everywhere and men in G-strings posing for Roman orgy night. Chicagoans loved this packed club. Gay sex and gay dancing was finally legal, queers were finally liberated, and it was so exciting for them to see how many others like them were actually out there, just waiting for a good party. Guests of the Bistro might not have known that River North was once a thriving gay neighborhood called Tower Town for decades until the 1930s. The Bistro was one of many clubs who brought the party back. Dugan's Bistro partied until 1982 when the neighborhood gentrified and the developers came. Dugan and his team cleaned out the building, but left all their massive bags of confetti and glitter in the walls so that when the wrecking ball came down, River North got one last queer party. Maria Costas. Maria has owned a business, worked several jobs, including adjunct professor, job placement director, workforce development instructor, stripper of paint, hold on, of paint on woodwork. <laughs> but we're all about whatever it takes here, so it's all good. <laughs> you didn't have to add that part, but it's all right. Anna Carney, but her longest standing gig, pun intended, has been pouring a bit of empathy into mixed cocktails during over 40 years of tending bar. Currently, she teaches meditation and bartends at weddings, often while driving her Mustang convertible, something she doesn't recommend that you try. And you can hear her tell stories around Chicago. It's her second time at Outspoken. Come on, Maria. She kicks the door in for her entrance. Red high-top gym shoes. She's got a brown bomber jacket on, a rock and roll t-shirt, and dark aviator sunglasses on at night. Are these bitches tipping you, Maria? Well, she, she, didn't, she didn't say bitches. She said the C word, but it sounds kind of vulgar for today. It's 1980, and I am the full-time bartender at a new bar called the Swan Club. 3720 North Clark Street in Chicago. The Swan Dive, as the regulars call it, is a small bar, but it's tastefully designed. It's got an art deco 
wooden bar in the back. It's got pink and green tube lights on the side, dark forest green walls. It's got an exposed brick wall, and there's full-length mirrors on it. Now, up two stairs on the side is the pool table. And in between the pool table, I mean, in between two bathrooms is a cigarette machine. I work that end of the bar. That is my end of the bar. Butter walks in. She slinks down the bar. She stops and looks at women from head to toe. And she looks right over at Deb and said, how does it feel to wake up and look so good in the morning? And then she walks two more stools and she stops at Nagel and she said, oh, in my next life, I just want to come back as the tile in your bathroom floor. <laughs> I look at all the customers and they're looking at me and I see fight, flight, and freeze happen all at one time. Baby Butch Bobby stands up ready to defend just in case. The two scotch and sodas are gathering their things ready to run out of the bar. Some people are frozen just staring at their drink. And my regulars, my regulars down at my end, Sean and Lips and everybody, they're smoking their cigarettes and they're like, is there something we need to do, Maria? Is anything wrong? I say, don't worry everybody, it's just butter. She grew up with one of the owners. And so we can't really tell her not to be here. <laughs> I like butter. I see her, I see her as bar theater, like, like with an edge. Butter knocked on the door once before I opened the bar. I pull back the curtains and I peer at her. She pulls down her glasses and peers at me. I haven't seen you around here lately. Where'd you come from? Did you just come out to play now? I tell Butter that I've been around since the 70s, but that I left town to join a carnival. Not just some little church thing, I mean a big carnival. We played state fairs, we were in the amusement business. We were in the business of amusing large groups of people. Butter tells me that she knew a few carnies. Well, other than work, Maria, what were you doing out there? I mean, what were you doing? <laughs> She stares at me intently. I feel like we're having some kind of truth-telling game going on. Well, <clears throat> I thought the carnival was like a huge playground of permission. Permission to be whoever, whoever you wanted to be at the time. There were businessmen on the carnival, artists, teachers, moms, felons. There were runaways, there were butches, there were femmes, and there was me, bisexual. I loved that I felt accepted for who I was on the carnival because when I left home, I didn't feel that way. Butter tells me she thinks younger women seem to swing between butch and femme these days. Ah, the butchers are soft, she said. They're androgynous, they're like David Bowie people. <clears throat> and then she said, Maria, if you like to swing on a dick, that's not my business, but I have news for you. Don't tell anybody, these bitches aren't ready for you. And Butter was right. Many women did not accept bisexuality at the time. The radical feminists thought I was sleeping with the enemy. Some women thought that I would have a disease. Others just yelled, get off the fence, Maria, make a decision, damn it. None of it felt very good. Now, Dolly owns the bar 
with her lover, who we'll call B for this story. Dolly's 40, B's 32, and I'm 25. So we draw all, living, all different levels of uh, age groups and education, too. As we plan the opening, Dolly has her friend Andy, a former bar owner, talk to me about bartending. When men come in, Maria, men, when men fight, Maria, they will show you. They will, they will posture. They'll roll up their sleeves. You'll see it coming, but women? Women will just slap you over the head from nowhere. And you'll, never, you'll never see it coming. You've got to hear it coming. You've got to listen. And you've got to listen to everything, Maria. And by the way, you will hear the most intimate stories. Way too much information. And you have to listen to them and don't give advice, whatever you do. If you give bad advice, you're gonna lose a customer. If you give advice and piss someone off, they're gonna throw something at you. She continues to give advice. <laughs> and then she said to me, this is what you do, Maria. You just look at him and you say, well, you have to do what you have to do. Uh, <clears throat> Pat works Friday nights with me. Now, Pat is a first-generation Italian woman. She's about 30-something. She insults the customers, and the more she insults them, the more money they throw at her. They, they, they just feel like they're loved. It's like some affectionate kind of Italian slap in the face thing, and she's really good at it. But, but I can feel pain under, under Pat's humor. And every Friday when Pat comes into the bar, she comes up to me seriously, and she said, Maria, Maria, if anything happens to me, I mean, like if I, if I have a heart attack or something, or if I die, don't let my father see me in a gay bar. Drag my body out onto the street. Do that for me, Maria, do it. <laughs> Pat's a good bartender. She's got a lot of style, and I'm, I'm working on my style. I'm fast, I'm efficient, and I can listen to multiple conversations all at once. I know everybody's name. I remember everybody's drink, just exactly how they want it. I work my corner of the bar like a pro. I am a wealth of information. I know all the phone numbers for all the cabbies. I know all the all-night restaurants. I know which restaurants will deliver food to the bar. And for my regulars, for my regulars, I know who's got the quaaludes, where you can get some papers. <laughs> I even know who will trade needles for drinks. The Swan Dive is a clubhouse for the regulars, and I meet all of the regulars. Mary comes into the bar after her restaurant shift. I introduce her to Tuna, and Brie, and Remy, and Pate, and she leans over and said, when did we start naming women after menu items? And I love, and I love Mary immediately. And there were a lot of nicknames. Butter gave me a nickname. She called me the Lean Greek Cuisine. All right, it was 40 years ago. But I liked it. And Women change their names. Some people, some women change their names because they just didn't feel like it fit them. And some change their names because their fathers disowned them. And some change their names because their fathers raped them. Then I met Brown. Brown is a soft butch with a soft and sexy voice. Pure bar theater also, just a different style. Brown knocked on the door one day before opening. She had a bandana around her face and a dart gun in her hand. She said, your body or your life. 
Brown loved women. One time, she and her lover came into the bar wearing a robe and pajamas, and they had cold cream all over their face and their hair in curlers, and they were holding a cup and saucer and drinking brandy and just walking around the bar talking about the price of makeup at Walgreens. <laughs> I mean, we had to be each other's entertainment. Of course I loved her. <laughs> In 1984, Brown and her lover were on the poster for the Chicago Filmmakers Lesbian and uh, uh, Gay Film Festival, and Brown signed every single poster, Brown Slick, have tongue, will lick. <laughs> Ginger needs attention, so Ginger, Ginger jumps on the bar often, and this night she jumps on the bar, and she's dancing, and she's waving her hands around, and the women are screaming, and the, and the owner's like, lock the door, lock the door, so the police don't come in, and, and women are throwing money at her, but I'm looking at the fans, and Ginger's dancing, and I see the fans, and I'm like, Ginger, the fans, the fans, and she thinks I'm saying pants, the pants, and she pulls her pants down, panties and all, and women are yelling and laughing and throwing money, and I see some tears come out of people's eyes as they laugh. On Thanksgiving, Marge Summit comes into the bar. Marge owned a bar called His and Hers, gay bar under the L, the best burgers in town, the His Burger, the Hers Burger. How long would her menu have to be today? <laughs> Marge tells people, Marge tells me that women need a safe place to come to. They need a safe place to play, to blow off some steam, to be listened to, to be cared for, especially on the holiday. Because, because Maria, some, some of them can't go home on the holiday. So she gives me a big tip and she thanks me for working on Thanksgiving. And I am working nine hour shifts, four days a week, every holiday. I'm laughing with some of the customers. I'm crying with some of them. I'm entertaining some of them. I'm taking care of them. But, but I, don't, I, don't feel, I don't feel taken care of. Not emotionally. I mean, not emotionally. I'm living with a woman and her one-year-old son. And she wants very much to be a family. But my, my own family, my own family doesn't recognize us. I can still feel my Greek mother like it was yesterday. She is walking, and she's doing the sign of the cross, and she is saying, I would rather have you sleep with every Tom, Dick, and Harry on the street than to be a lesbian. And then she looks at me and she says, in my deepest soul, I think it's wrong. Now why'd you have to go to the soul? Other mothers, other mothers are like, are you sure you want to live like this? It's a harder life. Or what about the grandchildren? No, my mother's got to go right to the soul. not tell your father, she tells me. He will die of a heart attack. So one day I go home and I tell my lover I'm, I'm bored. But I didn't know it then, but bored is not the right word. I just didn't know what the word was. And my, my, lover, my lover thinks I want excitement and, and because she's as hurt as I am, her idea of excitement is different. She comes to the door before opening. I let her in, I lock the door. We go into the bathroom. She runs the water, powders in a spoon. There's the sound of the match. I give her my arm. She draws the needle. And somehow, somehow I interpret this as being taken care of. 
At the end of three years, I move back in with my parents who do not know what I need. My father brings me candy bars. My mother hides all the pills in the house. I'm lying in bed thinking about what I believe about life and death. My sister is of no help. My father has no idea who I am. My mother thinks I'm just wrong. The words they say about family seem like bullshit because what is loyalty without any love? And I dig deep for a seed. So I go and I see my grandmother. She makes me coffee and she makes me some soup and she tastes it. She tastes it, be sure she gives it to me. And there's not more, there's not a more sacred moment than that moment, more sacred than a priest offering communion. And my grandmother looks at me and she said, Maria, if you get married, you're gonna have problems. And if you don't get married, you'll just have different problems. But the most important thing in life is to share it with your friends. My grandmother's words carried me until I learned how to take care of myself. And today, I am lucky to have some of the best friends in the world. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you've got a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any podcast platform you like. Ada Chang recorded their story in December 2018, Richard Rodriguez in June 2015, and Maria Costas in July 2021. Outspoken is hosted by Kim L. Hunt and Art Johnston, curated by Archie Jamjun, artistic director David Fink, stage manager Brad Bailoff, story collector Ray Teresi, audiovisual tech Brian Smith, podcast producer Devlin Camp. Hi, that's me. If you like my queer history segments, you can check out my queer history podcasts. They're very soapy, wild, and educational. Find all my other shows wherever you find podcasts or at queerserial.com, queer, S-E-R-I-A-L, serial.com. Also, check out the book Dugan's Bistro and the Legend of the Bearded Lady by Owen Keenan for more fabulous stories from Chicago's legendary disco. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is recorded in front of a live audience. Sidetrack is dedicated to providing entertainment and hospitality in a respectful, safe, and inclusive space for the LGBTQ community. Find out more at SidetrackChicago.com. You can find more information about Outspoken at SidetrackChicago.com slash OutspokenChicago. Music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. Thanks for listening. Bye.